Hello everyone and welcome to the first season of Tomorrow City podcast, the world's biggest platform for cities. It's Areti Markopoulou speaking and you are listening to the show that brings you ideas today for tomorrow city life. Through global interviews, we bring a diverse set of opinions and debates from the people that are already building the cities of tomorrow because the challenges for tomorrow should be tackled today. Episode 3, Reorganization of Public Space. Who owns the streets? Don't be surprised if you go downstairs to buy bread any day now and you find a sidewalk drone delivering packages or an aerial one flying overhead delivering pizza to your neighbors. Some companies have taken advantage of this pandemic lethargy to advance their automated sipping tests. The human presence may not be as active outdoors as it was, but the saying that the city never sleeps is still valid and other mechanical beings have taken over. To all this, on the way to the bakery, do not get too distracted by the bus stop billboard that promises you a better life. Remember that the street is an obstacle course. Avoid the electric scooters lying on the sidewalk and the public bicycles parked at every corner. Try not to trip over the barchers that proliferate in the broad sections of your way. And above all, keep a safe distance from other pedestrians. Tiring, right? We're witnessing the rise of a new concept of public space in cities that on the one hand strives to become truly citizen-centric design, but on the other hand, the commercial use of public space is gaining ground by leaps and bounds, while citizens lose our role due, among other reasons, to current restrictions on movement. At the same time, while the COVID-19 has accelerated some dynamics in cities, and technology almost always arrives earlier than the law, public administrations run against the clock to regulate the use of public space and avoid commercial cannibalization, while ensuring that these policies result in economic and social revitalization of these areas. And the street continues to belong to everyone who walks it. Certainly, the challenge is not an easy one. But there is good news too. In fact, some are putting efforts in energizing specific city areas and turning major infrastructure into people-focused engines at the service of the city and its citizens. Because the way to get involved in the social affairs is to keep moving forward. Barcelona is one of the main cities in the world and its port is one of the symbols through which people, ideas and goods have passed for centuries. Currently, ports are not mere intermediaries but have become market creators through innovation as well as their firm commitment to digital transformation, sustainability and increased community impact. Today, we're joined by Jordi Turent. He's head of strategy for the Port of Barcelona, which is one of the seven ports that conforms the smart ports peers of the future. It is an aggregation of seven very important ports of the world 
that join their forces on vital aspects, including innovation or sustainability. We are willing to know how many different ways does the port have to provide value and wealth for its respective city, even to redefine its contribution and impact in its influence area. So hello Zordi, welcome and many thanks for joining us in this chat. Let me start by asking what role does the port of Barcelona play in the economic growth of the city? Okay, thank you very much for the invitation to speak first. Um, this is uh, a, a, a difficult question to answer in, in few uh, lines, but let me say that today, um, when you look at the, um, at the statistics of job creation in a city like Barcelona or in Spain in general, or in Western Europe in general, you see that logistics is probably the sector that creates more occupation today of any other sector. Uh, beyond uh, above uh, industry or in other sectors. No? So logistics has become a very important factor in the prosperity of cities in general, thanks to the job creation. And this is um, this um, links also to our mission in the port. Our mission in the port, as it is um, defined in a new strategic plan approved uh, this month, is to create prosperity in the city through the provision of services and infrastructure to our customers no? that make them competitive in the global markets. No? So there are, and, um, a way of creating this property is job generation and as I said logistics generates a lot of job uh, today and in our port more in particular because our port is a very diversified port I would say that this is the most diversified port in the region in the Mediterranean we have very important nautical clusters uh, terminals for all type of cargoes a logistics activity zone so we are um, able to create very diversified port of, um, jobs from low qualified to very qualified um, which is very important in periods like the COVID crisis now, where we have some activities that have stopped, for instance, cruise uh, traffic. But thanks to this diversification, this has had not a very strong impact in occupation. No? On a daily basis, you have approximately, before COVID, you had 30, 37,000 people that came to work at the port on a daily basis. No? So uh, this, I would say, it's a very uh, good example of how we create prosperity and we help in the economic growth of the city that hosts the port. These are great numbers, Zordi, to understand the capacity that ports have to generate work in their area of influence, as well as to galvanize it. Um, but um, uh, ports are also public uh, infrastructure um, services, as well as uh, sometimes public space. And I wanted to understand in what way can the port of Barcelona help define the coastal area so that it can be put at the service uh, of the citizens um, in the city. Um, uh, as you may or may not know, the Porto Barcelona is uh, 10 kilometers long, no, um, um, and it occupies most of the coast of the coast of the city of Barcelona and also of a second municipality, El Prat del Llobregat. No, so. Um, from a coastal point of view, we are extremely important for the city because we occupy most of its coast. Uh, this port, um, in the old days, in the old days, I mean before the Olympic Games of '92, used to be somehow a barrier between the city and the sea. This changed a lot with the Olympic Games, with the reform of the of the old port, no, that. Uh, that was reformed uh, on occasion of, of the Games. And now I think we have to go a step forward um, beyond what we did in the 90s, as this is what we are, we are doing now, in order to try to um, make the coexistence between the city and the port and the coastal area more smooth 
um, and more fluent, no? um, not only in the old part of the port, but a little bit uh, further south, let's say, no? um, from a geographical perspective. No? So um, we have to think no? on um, how this diversification that I mentioned in the first question, no? how we can um, no? promote even more this diversification of activities in the coastal area. No? Um, when we think about no? um, marinas for private yards, about logistics activities on, etc. No? On how not to um, continue providing this diversification and at the same time making the mobility between the city and the coastal area um, even more fluent. No? Um, obviously, a commercial port has some limitations when it comes to mobility because of security, because of customs procedures, etc. No, that uh, we have to respect. Uh, the port is a critical infrastructure according to no, uh, to the law, so we have to respect security, customs procedures, etc. But uh, we have to make as much as possible mobility between the city and the coastal area you know, and smooth, no? smooth. And this is what we're going to work in the next five years in order to extend no, what was done in the old port a little bit beyond. These are very useful insights, Sorti, because the port is a gate from the city to the outside, but also from outdoors to its core. And I wanted to ask you, in what terms is the engagement between a smart city and a smart port? I mean, how are you bridging this gap, if there is any, in the city of Barcelona? Yeah, um, Barcelona, as you know very well, no, when you look at the rankings of smart cities or places attractive for the establishment of a smart of a new startup, no, always ranks among the five, six, seven uh, uh, best cities in in Europe, no, London, Berlin, Paris, Barcelona, Madrid, no, the, the, um, Barcelona normally ranks fourth, five, fifth in Europe. So this we have already in Barcelona a very important ecosystem of startups uh, that work on on the environment, that work on mobility, that work on on very different sectors. No? Unfortunately, we don't have still a very a very powerful uh, network of ecosystem of startups linked to the logistics sector. No? So one of the things that we need to do, to do together with the city no? and this ecosystem uh, in Barcelona is to try to no? um, reinforce this uh, ecosystem of startups no? uh, linked to the activities of the port, and I mentioned again, eh, um, the cruise passengers, uh, logistics activities on, uh, marinas for private yachts, um, port uh, activities, um, the automotive industry, etc. No? So to be able to no, um, promote Barcelona no, as a, a place for uh, this ecosystem of startups that exist in many other sectors in the city. No? So uh, replicate this uh, when it comes to port and logistics activities. And I think we have, no, we have the the features um, in order to become also a hub of uh, no, uh, startups um, in our sectors in the coming years. I don't know if I answered your question or you meant something else, but... <laughs> you have indeed answered my question. I just wanted to extend a bit the idea of the smart port, not just uh, into the logistics um, and infrastructural optimization, but also um, to the possibility that it could uh, bring um, certain solutions to the current environmental challenges and, and, and the climate crisis. I mean, is it possible that the port can improve the local environment? And if so, how do you plan to do that in Barcelona? 
it's possible and it has to do it. Um, our recently approved strategic plan of the port for the coming five years um, has set up different objectives and measures in order to reduce this impact, which exists obviously as any other economic activity it has impact on the on the negative impacts on the party of environment. It is true as well, and I'd like to point out that the impact is slower and uh, lower than what people think. No, um, the shipping industry accounts for approximately three percent of the greenhouse gas emissions total globally. And the port activity accounts for the port activity in Barcelona accounts for approximately 10% of the pollutants, different pollutants, it depends on the pollutant, no, but as a general figure. No? So the impact it's significant, it's smaller than, than some people think, it's significant, and obviously one of our main priorities for the coming years is to reduce this impact. No? How? So we have, we have planned different, as I said, different objectives and measures. I would group them in like three, four categories. No? The first one, and very important. We have approved a budget of 90 million euros in order to uh, um, electrify um, some terminals of the port so that when the vessels come to the port, in, instead of being uh, burning fuel in, with the engines while they are in the port, they would be connected to the electricity and this would reduce a lot emissions in the city. We're thinking to start with containers and ferries, but we have projects for further, uh, for later, for other terminals. Second, um, we have we are one of the few ports in the regions that we are providing bunkering um, LNG, liquefied natural gas, to vessels, which is an alternative fuel alternative fuel to to oil. Um, it's true that it still contributes a lot to climate change, but it reduces a lot some pollutants in the quality uh, in the in the air of the city. No, so um, we consider LNG, liquefied natural gas, as a transition fuel when. Uh, new clean fuel is 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 um, discovered, let's say, no, and can be used massively, being hydrogen, ammonia, or other things, no. But in the meantime, this can be a transition fuel in order to reduce a little bit the pollutants in the air of the city. Some pollutants quite significantly, eh? NOx, small particles, etc. And then we are working in different projects in order to uh, generate renewable energy in the port, not only solar energy, and also, very important, we have planned new infrastructure for liquid bulks, for containers, no? south of the port in order to concentrate activity there and have um, new generation infrastructure that allows the big vessels to come, which pollute less, no? and reduces the navigation of vessels in the port area. Um, it permits us also to do um, to create synergies between different terminals, etc. And finally, uh, the main one of the main drivers of a strategic plan is, is to construct new rail infrastructure in order to increase the percentage of cargo that enters or leaves the port, being finished vehicles, bulks or containers by trucks. So we hope that in the coming five years, the 12% for containers and 35% for vehicles would be increased uh, further. Sounds like great numbers. And there is no doubt of the importance of having a smart and digitalized port that it is committed to the environment. But it seems that Barcelona is also trying to go a step further and connect um, uh, the port, not only with the product that come in and out, but also with people and um, uh, trying to connect it with the city and the citizens. I wanted to understand if there is any specific strategy from your side oriented to how citizens use uh, the area of the port, how they can take advantage of it, um, or how technologies can be implemented into offer a better service uh, to the citizens. 
Uh, <clears throat> well, we have different uh, projects planned using, for instance, intel artificial intelligence, no, in order to be able to plan mobility without within the port area better, no. Um, uh, for instance, no, uh, when whenever cruise traffic comes back, no, um, so that we can plan uh, the no collective mobility better, no, predicting how many people are going to come, also. Um, and planning mobility within the old part of the citizens of the city that come to visit that area. So I think there's lots of room for improvement when it comes to mobility of citizens and tourism. And in this field, I think that digital intelligence um, and predictability and there's lots of room today i had a meeting this morning for instance with a company that uses you know that provides artificial intelligence in order to be able to plan this flow of people plan also as i said mobility no taxis uh, buses no um, depending on how many people you expect in the port being citizens or being tourists eh? so i think there's lots of room for improvement for instance when it comes to mobility of people inside the port area and i i think that with the with the covid this year um some things are going to move faster than expected thank you very much zordi for your valuable contribution keep up the great work that you're doing and we are all looking forward to see part of these strategies um, applied in the city in the next years to come thank you very much okay thank you for the interview thank you You can follow up Tomorrow City on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Listen to our show in your favorite podcast platform and discover much more content about cities and urban innovation at the webpage tomorrow.city. Your voice matters. Now let's go to the question of our episode. Do you think public space is being transformed for the better or for the worse? Well, in my opinion, uh... COVID-19 pandemic has been a milestone in the way we consider the spaces where we live in. I think uh, we realized cities should be thought for people and uh, not for cars. Uh, a city with uh, less uh, vehicles uh, is a healthier and a happier city. But unfortunately, we're far from that. Well, I live in Madrid and uh, as uh, it is happening with all the big cities i think the public space is being transformed for the worst because uh, it is continuously uh, being privatized and we have a lot of examples here in madrid a lot of uh, bar terraces uh, a lot of public space used for for parking cars so i think uh, the the public space as a way of meeting people or or just spending your time on, on the street uh, is disappearing and, and i think that's very sad public space is ideal for the companies to test their street marketing ideas it used to be great for social interaction but uh, maybe in the in the future uh, this interaction um, is impossible unless uh, it's sponsored by any trademark. Who knows? But uh, this could be a, a dangerous trend uh, to face. Yeah, that's a bit of an issue for me because I live in a city with lots of restaurants, cafes, bars, 
and due to the pandemic, they have been allowed to take those their seats, their tables outside to the sidewalks. And I think they are fine. It's, it's, they should be allowed because they need their businesses to stay afloat. At the same time, I believe that once the pandemic is over, the city's council is not going to, uh, to take them back in because they are, otherwise they will miss a lot of taxes because those restaurants, those bars are paying for the right to use the sidewalks. And once the pandemic is over, again, uh, streets should be for the people. And I'm not really sure that's going to happen. Let me introduce you to our second guest for today, Professor Emeritus of City and Regional Planning at the University of Berkeley in California, Robert Cervero. Robert works in the area of sustainable transportation policy and planning, focusing on the nexus between urban transportation and land use systems. It is a pleasure to have you with us, Robert. It's my pleasure. I will directly um, start this interview with a question about the, the pandemic. We were talking about how the pandemic may have given a new meaning to public space in cities. So I would like to ask you, what do you think about it? Is the COVID-19 context somehow reshaping the way we conceive public space? Yes, most certainly. I, I think it's probably the most visible um, sign of public intervention is that cities are reclaiming land from the car. The car is because of the need to park and drive is excessively consumed land. So we're seeing cities reclaim land uh, to allow physical distancing you know, where you have overcrowded sidewalks, but also um, a, a way to encourage physical activity. You know, people are holed up as part of lockdown. So they want to get out and enjoy the city to interact within distance. And, and of course, to help local businesses, they can now uh, put outdoor dining, say in former parking lots. So it, it's been a very important, necessary response to rethink how we use cities and to um in many ways take land away land excessively given over to the private car to allow this immediate response to to COVID. uh the hope is though that this is not short term that it will prompt us to rethink the importance of planning and designing a space such that we encourage healthy livable and uh, socially engaging kinds of, of urban environments. Um, and in certain ways, it's consistent with this idea of the 15-minute city that um, um, we want to design cities where a lot of activities can be reached within 5, 10, 15 minutes by foot or bicycle. Uh, so we're serving the immediate populations um, for the vast majority of trips um, through better urban design, through, again, reclamation of space from cars to pedestrians and cyclists, uh, and in so doing, uh, creating, again, uh, healthier, uh, livable, and socially engaging kinds of urban settings. In a way, what you're describing as a 15-minute city model, which becomes very, very, um, uh, let's say, um, uh, famous in the, in the, in the conversations of, uh, of the last months, um, it is a way of, of applying a micro-level uh, initiative um, such as the transit-oriented development that you are working on to reduce car ownership and usage. And I would like to ask you, how do you see the effect of uh, such models uh, at the neighborhood level? How do you see the effect also uh, in the urban planning? 
Yeah, so, so transit-oriented development is a concept that's been around for many, many, many decades. Um, and it's not a new idea. You, you only have to look at many cities 80 years ago before the automobile. Most development indeed was around public transport corridors near train stations and along busways. Uh, so in certain ways, it's a return to the past. I think, um, you know, it's a very sensible, logical way to design the city so that, again, um, activities um, can be reached by electric trains, sustainable transport. And then if we design and plan cities well, uh, many activities can be uh, reached by foot or bicycle within the community. So it, it's part of the sustainable design. I do think, though, with the post-COVID city, we need to rethink about tall buildings. That's the typical image of transit-oriented development. Um, I'm a proponent of this idea of a transit village uh, for the vast majority of stations where um, instead of these tall towers, you have two to three to four story walk-up buildings, uh, wood frame construction, which is a lot cheaper and, and more durable and in many ways um, allows affordable housing. But because you can walk up the building instead of escalators and so forth, you, you can't allow physical distancing, I, plus local retail. Uh, within the transit village, uh, you know, the vast majority of neighborhood and community activities, uh, retail and, and groceries and so forth, are provided for the immediate residences within the neighborhood. So, so I think the transit-oriented development, transit village model is probably the most sustainable form of urbanism. But COVID has required us to rethink the design, and perhaps um, we, we we need to come up with more choices and opportunities to allow. Um, this sort of post-COVID city to flourish and, and the, the notion of a, a moderate density transit village, I think, is one option. And what about the rise of micromobility? I mean, these new ways of moving around um, um, that they are rising uh, lately, we can see that they, they have a, an effect on streets and public space. How does micromobility approach uh, urban form and street networks? And um, is it easy or tricky for a city to, to successfully implement a micromobility strategy? Well, well I, I, I think it, it, it is consistent with the idea of the 15-minute city. Yeah, you can walk, but um, many people are too old to walk or bicycle or the weather is too extreme. So the on-demand, the or you're in a rush to meet an appointment, uh, on-demand, the ability to, to, to rent a, a, a motorcycle or a motor scooter or electric bike um, or even a, a car to go uh, provides more mobility choices and options. And it, of course, if it is electric, it's going to be a much more sustainable environment. Um, but there's a lot of kinks that, that it, it, by the way, you know, we, we, we hear the term first, last mile connectivity. It does allow that additional connectivity. Um, though the, the problem we're having is conflicts. You have these movement streams, pedestrians, regular cyclists, and then faster moving mopeds and motorcycles all competing within this kind of 15 minute confined city or, or community neighborhood, um, you have a lot of conflict points. And then access to curb, where do you park these things? So we, we need better information and knowledge to manage this. Uh, we could use sensors and, and smart pricing to uh, charge higher fees for those who park for longer periods of time or irresponsibly park, say, inside their motor scooters and motorcycles. So I think there's a lot of real-time kind of monitoring 
um, pricing, somewhat regulation and enforcement we need to be introducing to allow a safe, livable, uh, immediate community um, uh, in this 15-minute uh, city notion. Uh, but with that said, I, I think it's here to stay and it's uh, going to continue to increase in popularity. Uh, and it, it is, again, consistent with this idea of, of a livable, walkable, accessible community. So um, I think on balance, it's a very good um, trend we're seeing in, in many cities of the world. Uh, Robert, you spent many years studying cities around the world and you know better than anybody that saving time during trips or commuting is a common obsession for everyone who lives in the city. So do you think that the application of some of these uh, strategies or models that we have discussed about uh, requires sacrification of public space or will the contrary happen? Will we increase public space by finally breaking free from a car-based city design? Yeah, I, I think we, we are seeing, again, this notion of right-sizing. We, we've excessively, in too many cities of the world, given over scarce public spaces to cars to park them and to move them. And in automobile-oriented cities, it's not uncommon to see 35% or, or more of land area devoted to cars. And this creates urban heat island effects. It creates impervious surfaces that are uh, cause water pollution. So. As we reclaim land and hit a, I think a, a more normal, sensible kind of 15 to 20% of land area devoted to cars, it frees up spaces for pedestrians and cyclists and micro mobility users and so forth. So I, uh, and it's, you know, we, it, the city is not just about designing for movement, it's also designing for people to socially interact, to sit, to engage, to really enjoy the life of the city. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think it does allow much more choice and variety and people to make rational choices where um, they can invest their scarce minutes of the day uh, in ways that involve less movement and more quality time with friends, neighbors, and, and, and loved ones. And I, now the one thing we hear about the automobile-oriented city, one major source of pollution is, is time pollution. It robs so much of our quality time moving about the city and we have less time to engage with our neighbors and families and friends. So I think as we create more choices to walk and bike and so forth, people are going to make the very rational decision to invest less time in cars and living far from workplace or activities and moving all over the place instead, having quality of time uh, so that they, they can really enjoy other parts of life. And uh, so, yeah, I think it does allow for a much more efficient um, sort of livable management and budgeting of people's time, which I think we all recognize as increasingly a scarce commodity and a, a cherished commodity. So, These are great consideration, Robert, on, on the future of mobility, um, uh, on, public, on public space, as well as on the quality of life and time, as you say, uh, of our society. Thank you very much for participating and thank you very much for sharing your views. Yeah, happy to do so. It's my pleasure. We could not understand a city without squares or parks where we can socialize with others or relax on our own. These areas are of vital importance for us to take a break and to disconnect even for a short period of time from our smartphones. 
These corners of urban vegetation are essential for a sustainable development. If air pollution is one of the main concerns, city trees have a lot to say as they can store as much carbon as rainforest. We have to plant now the seeds of the reconstruction. Large infrastructures such as ports can also be the engine of economic change to face strategic and environmental challenges through a plural approach oriented to digital transformation. Their will to finance basic science and applied science is a determining impulse to aspire to a multidisciplinary future with a more social return. It is not arguable that public space in the world is increasingly privatized or brought under greater control to trace the movements and contacts of the individuals. But a few cities are promoting initiatives for a third use of public space. Just like main Rotterdam's boulevards, where cars are banned for a period of hours on behalf of pedestrians. Oakland in California, which has defined a mixed use of people and vehicles they call slow streets. Or Portland, that is transforming urban parking lots into farmers markets. If we don't want possibilities for democratic action to be minimized after the pandemic, then to create, recover and improve public space in our cities is mandatory. It is the ultimate spot for free speech and resistance. That is all from Tomorrow City podcast, but we will get back soon with a brand new episode on the future of work and education and how sustainable a city can be within four walls. Is it possible to maintain a teletraining infrastructure for schools similar to remote working? The countries that have, how have they done this? We are bringing you the minds and the ideas that today are shaping up tomorrow's city life. Stay tuned.